following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Now I'm assured that none of you boys and girls will do what I'm getting ready to talk about. But it is a pretty important story. So imagine a little boy who in the grocery store stole a candy bar. When he got home, his mother discovered what he had done. She talked to him from the Bible about what was wrong, and then she spanked him. That hurt. But maybe he thought, now it's all over with. I have borne my punishment. But you see, it wasn't all over with, was it, boys and girls? What else did he have to do? His mother led him by the hand back to the grocery store. He actually had to walk up to the, to the cashier, the clerk, and hand her the candy bar and say, I took this. And please forgive me. You see, punishment has many phases in it. And there'll be other examples as well that you might be spanked for something, and then you might also have a favorite toy taken away or a certain privilege taken away for a period of time. Well, this is a little bit of what we see here about the, the suffering, death, and burial of our Savior. For you remember that as he was on the cross at about 6 o'clock, or 3 o'clock uh, on that Friday afternoon, he cried out, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. Now you would think if it's finished, then the punishment is over, and he has had, he's paid the penalty, and he indeed has paid the penalty, what we call the penal suffering of his sin, the satisfaction of God's just wrath, so that God could be both just and the justifier of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was another aspect of his punishment. It wasn't penal, but it still was necessary because this aspect also had to do with the consequences and punishment of sin. And that is that he had to be buried and remain buried for a period of time. And so our larger catechism speaks to us that this is the last part of his humiliation. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Every time you confess those words, you're confessing the fact that the Savior was buried as a punishment for sin and remained under the power of death. Now we can see the practical necessity of that. He died on the cross. Uh, but if he had been immediately brought back to life, then the enemies would have um, more to conjecture. Well, he really didn't die. He only swooned, and, and he has recovered. No, he was buried. And the very burial of Christ was proof of his death, which was absolutely necessary. But also, as he was buried, he then sanctifies the tomb for us. He takes that last part of the, of the punishment and condemnation of sin upon himself. But you see, if the work had ended there, 
We would have no hope, as Paul himself says. We would have all people been uh, most pitied for worshiping a Savior who did not rise again from the dead. No, on the third day, our Savior rose again from the dead. And that's what we consider this morning. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate the resurrection, and we hope you never forget that. But this is at least one of those uh, marks on the church calendar that we know exactly when it happened uh, because of its relationship to the full moon and such as that. So it's good for us at times, not just on this particular Sunday, but on many different Sundays to remember particularly what we're about in the resurrection of our Savior. And I want to show you from these 10 verses uh, that the Savior uh, was raised for his vindication and our reconciliation. The Savior was raised for his vindication and our reconciliation. Now, those last three hours are very hectic as you read the end of chapter 27. Uh, they only had three hours to get him off the cross, get permission from Pilate, and bury him before the Sabbath, which would happen at 6 o'clock. So Joseph of Arimathea, cut by Nicodemus, went about that task and buried him in a tomb providentially prepared there near the place where Jesus himself was crucified. He was buried, and they all then went home. But the women who had observed the place of burial, had other intentions in mind. And they are the key players uh, in uh, these uh, first 10 verses in relationship to the declaration of the work of the Savior. So as we've seen, that by his resurrection, Christ is vindicated and declares reconciliation to his people. We're going to consider those two points, the vindication of the Savior, the reconciliation of his people. Now, the facts of the resurrection can be a bit jumbled. We have four gospel accounts and apparent discrepancies. But you need to understand that each gospel writer has things he wants to emphasize. Everybody has telescoped the events for the things they're emphasizing. So, in fact, although we may not be able to harmonize to our own satisfaction, the exact timeline of what occurs here it really testifies to the inspiration and errancy of the Scripture, because no men would be so foolish as to give us four books that they declare to be without error that would have error within them. So we accept the fact that we have four accounts. All are true. They simply look at the resurrection of the Savior from different perspectives. Now, Matthew's account of the fact of the resurrection is itself brief but dramatic. So we read in verse 28 that after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. That late Saturday night, Christ's enemies would have been happily asleep in their bed. They'd been freed from uh, their tormentor. 
Uh, these brave Roman soldiers would be sitting there, maybe around a fire, a campfire, and playing cards, as they had this very simple job of making sure that not a group of a few men could come and roll away the stone. Others were in deep mourning and filled with great fear, saying, we, we thought this would be the Messiah. These, these women, there were more than two, but, but Matthew mentions the two, Mary Magdalene, uh, from whom Jesus cast out seven demons, and one other Mary, who here is the mother of James and Joseph, along with others, they are now coming out to the tomb. They come uh, in uh, a devotion to the Savior, but it's a devotion to the dead Savior, you see. They came not expecting anything, but to have to get somebody to remove the stone so they could further anoint his body. But as they are approaching the tomb, as they're wondering who's going to roll away the stone for us, there's suddenly this earthquake. And as the earth shook, this glorious angel comes down from heaven. Look at his description. It says that uh, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing is as white as snow. And this symbolized the, the purity and, and the holiness and the majesty of this angel, this messenger has been sent from God to bear witness to the resurrection of the Savior. As he comes... He simply rolls away the stone, and then he sits on top of it. Now, we're told that the soldiers, when they saw this angel coming and rolling away the stone, fainted dead away. They were like dead men. These brave Roman soldiers just passed out in fear. But these two women come up, and though. They have fear as well, and I think this has something to do with a good conscience. They'd come in sincerity. They'd come seeking the Savior. And so though they were fearful, they did not flee. But they remained there to find out exactly what was happening. Well, the stone was not rolled away for Jesus to get out, because we know later in the Gospel of John that if he wanted to, he could walk through doors. The stone was rolled away so the witnesses could go in. And thus that stone is rolled away and the angel is there and Jesus is not there. And that is the message that the angel gives to the ladies. He said to them, first off, a word of comfort. Do not be afraid. What a glorious word from this holy being who strikes terror in the hearts of all men. And yet he's come as the messenger of the Savior God. He's come to those who loved and worshipped the Savior God. And thus, though the soldiers were greatly fearful, and he did not say to them, do not be afraid, he says to these dear women, do not be afraid. Be comforted. Because, notice the relationship, do not be afraid, because, for, I know what you're doing. You're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. And the next words, he is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. So here's the first declaration of the resurrection of our Savior. This glorious angelic messenger of Jehovah God declares that the one who was crucified is not there because he has risen from the dead. With that declaration, 
he then gives a confirmation. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So the facts are very simple. Uh, and yet the great profundity of what Matthew shows us here by the Holy Spirit, that our Savior, by his own almighty power, rose again from the dead. This is testified to now by an angel and by two women. And so we have our first three witnesses of the resurrection of the Savior. But what does this have to do with the Savior's vindication? Well, Paul will answer that for us in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul reminds us that it was in humiliation that he was put to death. Verse 3, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord. You see, you remember that he was condemned as guilty by the church. They declared him to be a blasphemer because he said he's the son of God. By the state, who eventually punished him because he was a revolutionary and a rabble rouser and a disturber of the peace and one who was going to overthrow the authority of the Romans. Now, this is an innocent man who is crucified, dead, and buried. Now we understand that that had to happen according to God's prophecy. That yes, he is humanly innocent, but all of this was part of what God prophesied. For example, in Isaiah 53, that he then might truly become guilty, not of his own sin, but of the sin of his people for whom he died. And thus everything he did in those six hours on the cross, as I've already said, was satisfying the justice of God. But also, now placed into the tomb, he is still being declared a guilty criminal who deserved to die. Now you begin to understand his vindication. For if he had remained in the tomb, then all of those who cursed him, all those who condemned him, would have rightly said, you see... We were right. Look at this. He's dead. No, by his release and, and these uh, hymns that we have sung that uh, focus on death as a prison house, he was released now from the prison house of the dead to be vindicated. In 2015, a man in North Carolina named Timothy Brown had been in prison for 25 years for a crime he did not commit. Finally, on the basis of new evidence, he was released from prison and pardoned by the governor. Now, see, in that release from prison, the state is making a statement. The state is saying, this man is not guilty of that for which we put him in prison. And God now is saying, through the resurrection of our Savior, he is not guilty for the causes that you put him to death, but moreover, he has fully satisfied all the reasons that I ordained his death. So in his vindication, not only is he declared not guilty, in his vindication, he's declared now as the Son of God who has perfectly accomplished the salvation of his people so that all who believe in him shall be eternally saved. 
You remember how Paul puts it in the end of Romans chapter 4. Speaking of the cross, he was delivered up for our transgressions. And then he says, he was raised for our justification. Well, you see, in his vindication is his justification. He's being declared not guilty. And in his resurrection, then, for us, that's the basis, then, of our being declared not guilty. And I hope you marvel here at the wisdom of our God, who so carefully decreed and planned and, and operated this, this glorious plan of salvation, even as it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. Um, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. There he dies with criminals. He put a rich man's tomb because he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he's poured out himself to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. So there he now is in his resurrection assigned this place of preeminence. Indeed, as we sing, he who put on human nature as a man kept his divine nature as the God-man. He now is raised again from the dead and the perfect Savior of his people. Which leads now to the second thing that we have in our text, and that is having seen um, the resurrection of the Savior, his vindication of the Savior, we see now the uh, reconciliation of his people. I use the word reconciliation here in uh, the sense that uh, we were at enmity with God. We were under his just wrath and condemnation. And through the work of Christ accomplished on the cross, as penally our guilt is removed when we come to him by faith, we then come not as enemies of God, but we come to him as one who has justified us and adopted us. Reconciliation means that he has pardoned all of our sins and constituted us legally righteous in his sight, adopted us as sons and daughters into his family. Now, how do we see that here in the second portion of our text? Well, the second part of the angel's message, his commission to the women, is a hint of reconciliation. In verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead, and behold, and notice the emphasis, behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Notice the emphasis here. They are to go with a message, an important message. Twice, behold, pay attention. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Notice the authority of the message. Behold, I have told you. And this relates back to something we read in Matthew chapter 26. After the institution of the Lord's Supper, in verses 31 and 32, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, 
and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So when the angel comes now and he says, pay attention, tell them this, behold, that he will go before them and meet them in Galilee, this is the hint, the hint of reconciliation. It's tell my disciples. Now immediately every disciple was stricken with a guilty conscience, right? You know how it's been if, if you've offended somebody and, and uh, you're getting ready to see them after some period of time and, and although you've, you've sought reconciliation, you don't know how they're going to receive you. You really did act in a dastardly way against them. And so you know that, that tension that, that you feel. This is something the disciples would have felt. So it's tell the disciples I'm going to go before them and meet them. But he's going to meet them in Galilee. Now, this is an interesting part of the story because he had some early appearances uh, in Jerusalem. But in Galilee, where he first gathered his church, this is where he meets with the over 500. This is where the majority of his disciples would have come from. Many of them would have already returned home in sadness, like Cleopas and his friend. And if Christ had not met them, they'd have gone home dejected, sad, and mourning. So after the Passover, they returned to Galilee. But there where Jesus first began to gather his flock, the flock that now was scattered, he's going to come as the great shepherd and reassemble them. That very reassembling is going, this fits the whole pattern of, of reconciliation, of pardon and forgiveness. So that, that's the hint of what's being promised here. That's why it's to be in Galilee. But notice, it's still a bit impersonal. Tell my disciples that I'm going to meet them. Well, they take off uh, with great fear and trembling, but running, they go to the apostles. In verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, another attention marker, Jesus met them. You know, it's, it's remarkable that our Savior, and it shows you a great deal about him, shows women to be the very first people to whom he would reveal himself as the risen Savior. Jesus met them. And it says he greeted them in the New American Standard, but actually he used the, the warm Greek greeting. He says, Kare, hello. It's quite remarkable that here he comes before these women and he approaches them in such tenderness. He's honored them above all to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. And he says, good morning. And what is their response? They fall at his feet. They hold him. And they worship him. There's really no greater statement of the deity of our Savior than these simple verses. If our Savior indeed was a righteous man, and these women fell at his feet to worship him, his response would have been abhorrent. It would have been like the angel when John falls at his feet to worship him. No, no, you don't worship me. You only worship God. But the exalted God-man, who is fully divine, accepts now their worship and honors that worship, now with not just the hint of reconciliation, but with the sure hope of reconciliation. Notice there's but one change in the wording, but it is so 
significant. He said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Once again, be comforted. Words of great comfort. Do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren. My brethren. My brothers. To leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. I hope you can begin to get something of, of the sense of the, of the general disciples to what the Savior says here. It is what is prophesied, as we read in Psalm 22, that he, in the midst of the great assembly, declares uh, God's name to the brethren. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. But the writer of the Hebrews spells it out for us in greater detail exactly what's being accomplished here. Verse 10 of chapter 2, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Begin to follow this, sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So you see that uh, as God the Son comes from the Father, all those who are being sanctified by him also are from the Father. For which reason? He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, quoting now Psalm 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He who was delivered from the power of death conquered Satan, conquered death, satisfied the just wrath of God, and in his resurrection has laid the foundation for our reconciliation. The Son of God, the true eternal Son of God, the Messianic Son of God, now calls his disciples his brothers. Now let that sink in. That word just kind of floats through the air with us. He who has been justified as the Son of God now admits them into the family. As Paul will say later, to make us co-heirs with him in our adoption. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, yes, you've, you've sinned against me. The sheep have been scattered, even as I told you it would happen. Yes, you all are sinners and guilty under sin and, and condemnation and the power of death. But I've conquered those things. And in my resurrection now, God declares me to be vindicated that you may be reconciled with all the offense, all the guilt of your sin removed so that God does pardon your sins, constitutes you righteous, but adopts you into his family. As you think about the resurrection, let this sink in. And part of the further proof of that is what Paul then will quote in 1 Corinthians 15, that over 500 saw him. 500 were gathered with him. Notice what Paul says about them. And some are asleep, not dead. No, this is the word the Bible used for the righteous who die in Christ. Some have already gone to be with the Lord. 
Most are yet alive, but all now part of the church are the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how it fits together, I hope, that by his resurrection, he is vindicated. By his vindication, you are reconciled to God. It's a glorious truth. And it's a truth that we not only think about today, every Sabbath day has been appointed by God to remind us of the incarnation, the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Every Sabbath day. You notice this relationship where Christ is declaring the name of brothers in the great assembly? In every assembling of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Savior by his Spirit is in our midst as God has promised. In the preaching, he's speaking to us with a living voice, and he is addressing his church as brethren, as brothers and sisters. So that every Sabbath, every worship service needs to make you mindful of the fact that you are an adopted son, an adopted daughter of God with all of the rights and privileges of the family, of, of the children of God. Revel in this reality. If you wrestle with assurance of salvation, let these words sink in. You've done nothing worse than what Peter did. And yet he says to him, you are my brother. If you have repented of your sins and you are resting in Christ, he says to you, fear not. You are my brother. Be not afraid. You are my sister. Even if you sinned as dastardly as Father Adam and Mother Eve, as wickedly as Manasseh, he says to you, fear not. I've paid it all. I accept you. You are my brother. You are my sister. The very fact that we assemble is testimony to you about assurance of salvation. And as in a couple of weeks, we come to the Lord's table. Again, it's Christ in the midst of the assembly who's both host and meal, who by his spirit gives himself to us. And he says, fear not. I am your brother. I am your brother. It's a glorious thing. And I hope every one of you here this morning in your conscience is aware of this great reality. You know as you sit here today, you know in good conscience, can you say, yes, yes, I am brother to Christ because I have repented of my sins and I trust in him. Now, if you've not done that, the grave to you is an awful place. Death is but the continuation of the torments of hell begun in your life even in this life. But it's a gateway. For the Christian, the grave is a gateway to heaven. But for the non-Christian, hell is a gateway. The grave is the gateway to hell. It's the next irremediable step from which there's no return. But in this life, there's still a return. There's still opportunity now as you hear, as you listen, as you know that, yes, I'm not in Christ, and he says to you, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Believe in me. Take hold of me. Trust in me. He says, I will make you my brother, my sister. Let us pray. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.